You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley. I'm joined by my co-host, Jin Wilkin and JT English. What's up, y'all? Hey, Kyle. Hey, hey. Kyle, hey. Hey, just summertime living out here, and uh, we're recording this for first for our Patreon audience and community. Uh, I've titled this The Best Audience in Podcasting, our Patreon Q&A, and uh, I really believe that. Man, uh, we have an incredible community over there. We're thankful for that. Uh, You might wonder, like... The Patreon community, what does it actually do and how does it actually help support? I know this seems crazy and we don't talk about it a lot because we we haven't had to, but I think it's just important to acknowledge, like we've launched four, uh, three other podcasts and we're launching our fourth this fall, Tiny Theologians with Amy Gannett. And those podcasts would not be possible, especially being offered for free, apart from the support of our Patreon community. I know it's weird to talk about that. That's why we don't talk about it a lot, but your support is going to launching more resources. We're taking it. And we're driving it into going, okay, what's the next best thing to get out there for discipleship resources for local churches and for the church nationally? And so we want to thank you for support. You guys have been consistent. Your core audience, thank you for sharing these podcasts. And you've asked great questions. Uh, And to that end, we're going to try to get to every one of the questions that got posted by the time we were recording it. So we're going to jump right in and we're going to go through these questions. Um, We are going to try to keep our answers a little bit more concise just because there's a lot of questions and we won't all answer every one of them. Uh, Some of these are are callbacks to things we've talked about on the show. Sometimes the question is asking a question that we've treated at length on an episode somewhere. And where that's the case, uh, we'll refer you to that episode or to that season. But let's jump right in. Brian. Brian starts off with this question, which we're going to send to JT. So thankful for what y'all do. I've listened to y'all talk about the Trinity. I've read both books you recommended on the topic, Delighting in the Trinity and Simply Trinity. I also listened to the episode with Dr. Barrett, and I'm just about ready to leave uh, eternal functional subordinationism behind for good after being raised on the idea that there is a hierarchy in the Trinity. The only thing that holds me back is 1 Corinthians 15, 7, uh, 27 through 28. If there's no hierarchy in the Trinity, mm-hmm. why is Paul talking about the Son himself being made subject to God, who I assume is God the Father? So JT, 1 Corinthians 15, 27 through 28, why does it appear that Paul is talking about the Son being made subject to God? Yeah, that's a great question. And this would be the text that I think kind of most EFS proponents uh, either kind of continue to come back to, or that if you're just re- trying to maintain a plain reading of the biblical text, that you could come to a conclusion just simply that the Son is eternally fu- uh, functionally subordinate to the Father. I think one of the best things that I could recommend is getting some great resources around ancient Christian interpretation of this text. This is not a text that just emerges out of nowhere that all of a sudden the 1970s evangelicals have had to start reading, whether it's Athanasius or Augustine or things around the Council of Nicaea and Chalcedon. They're engaging with this text in meaningful ways without giving you like an entire history of interpretation. They maintain that the Son is not eternally functionally subordinate to the Father, and they're basically just saying that in this text, Paul is referring to still the person of the the Son, who is the who is both human and eternally divine, becomes human in the incarnation, and they're saying he's referring not to a nature, but specifically to the person. I find that to be a compelling reading, especially in light of the context of other passages. So I, I would just submit this is just also a good kind of biblical interpretation 
I would say, piece of advice is read the text along with ancient friends. Mm-hmm. And these ancient friends, whether they're writing councils or creeds, or it's just friends, contemporary friends in a lot of your community, they can help you become better readers of the text. And I believe that the ancient church helps us read that text specifically by, by giving that interpretation. Excellent. Uh, for you, Jen, this is from uh, Kim, it looks like. Uh, in Luke chapter four, uh, the devil tries to tempt Jesus by showing him all the kingdoms of the world and telling him that he can give Jesus authority and glory over them because that uh, has been delivered to him and he can give it all to Jesus if Jesus will worship him. Obviously, Jesus didn't fall into any of the temptations, but I'm wondering, did the devil actually have that authority that he was claiming to have? I thought Jesus has all the authority. So was the devil just flat out lying or was there some basis behind this temptation? Okay, well, I'm going to answer from a different... I'm going to do that thing that politicians do where they answer the question they want to answer instead of the question that was asked a little bit. I would say ask ask a, a broader question about why that scene is included in the Gospels in the first place. Um, Jesus, is there a fulfillment of a type that we saw in the Old Testament, which was Israel during its 40 years of temptation in the wilderness? And so um, what we're seeing, the takeaway should be that whereas Israel was tempted to run after other gods to basically essentially take on the character and the and the and the power structures of the other kingdoms of this earth uh, Jesus refuses that and so um, that's really the more important thing to take away is to see that he fulfills all righteousness that he is not tempted toward anything that is contrary to the will of the father in the way that we are so um, did the devil have that authority I I, I mean, I guess it's an interesting question, but I think that the more important question to ask is why does this scene even given to us in the first place? Um, we must assume that in order for Jesus to have experienced real temptation, then there must have been a real offer on the table. Um, but again, since he knows the will of the Father and he understands his position in relation to the Father, he understands in a way that Adam and Eve missed that there's nothing that Satan can offer him that is better than or mm-hmm. superior superior to what he already has in his relationship to the Father. That's great. Uh, Daniel asks, uh, Danielle, not Daniel, sorry, Danielle, uh, do you have recommendations on how to deepen heart engagement in devotional time with the Lord? I spend time each morning reading scripture and journaling prayer as I meditate on what I read. However, I often uh, err on the side of intellectualizing the Bible. Too often my prayers become more like theological observations. My heart can often be put on the back burner. Most Christian women I'm close to don't experience this, and it can be very frustrating. Any advice or resources? Well, Danielle, I think this is a really great question, and I would be eager to hear what Jen has to say about it. I will say that I also struggle with uh, and have with my Bible reading and my Bible study feeling like it's just kind of like knowledge accumulation. I want to say one thing. That's not a bad thing. It's really good to know the Bible because the Bible is God's living and active word, uh, and to know it and to dwell upon it is worthy as an endeavor in and of itself. And it is forming you, even when it doesn't feel like it is. Mm-hmm. So just know that. Um, but beyond that, I would say one of the ways that I've learned to do this is just prayerful engagement of God's word, meaning trying to use the structure or the point of the passage that I'm reading or studying as the central point or structure for my prayer life for that moment. Mm -hmm. So if I'm reading 
a narrative uh, in the Gospels, for example, and I'm reading a portion of like the miracle, uh, the miracles or, or the miracle ministry of Jesus, but I might use a portion of that narrative or the kind of the theme of that portion of the narrative as the structure or as the center of how I'm praying for that day. It's a way of taking it and really trying to digest it, meditate on it, and just kind of sit in it for a little while and then to bring it back to God in prayer and pray. So praying scripture, I think, is a principal way that we can continue the work of meditation that begins with reading and that moves towards study. Uh, med- uh, prayer is, is a way that we can continue that work of meditation uh, that maybe engages our mind, our heart, uh, and our imagination at the same time. So that's just one thought. Jen, have you, I mean, I know that this is a mm-hmm. perennial topic in the Bible study devotional landscape. Any thoughts for Danielle here? Yeah, I mean, I've said it a lot of times, but it's something I have to remind myself of, that this is a long-term view that we need uh, if you're asking, and I'm not saying Danielle is saying this, but if we expect that we will feel a particular way on the day that we're in a passage, then we probably have a wrong expectation or certainly not a normative expectation of of how um, that should happen. And this is why I'm not a huge fan of devotional reading in general, Um, because I think that the devotional aspects of our interaction with the Scripture are something that are a long-term yield. So I would say, Danielle, if you're journaling, you actually have a tool to help you recognize the work that is happening, because you can go back and read things that you've journaled previously. Um, Look over your shoulder and see where the Lord has been doing work if you're not seeing it in the moment. I had the funniest experience um, sitting on the third floor of my house, which is where we stash all the stuff that we forgot that we owned. And we were cleaning out a closet and I found... I found sermon notes that I took when I was in middle school. Um, they were dated, and wow, um, wow. and I read them, and I thought, oh my goodness, the Lord was showing me that all the way back then. And so that's an extremely long timeline in my case, but you could go back two years and read some of the things you wrote down and, and, and see, oh, the Lord has been doing a work in me and been showing me things. He's growing my understanding, and He's growing my adoration for Him. Just a thought. Hmm. I love it. Uh, Austin asks, if repetition is the mother of learning, then what is the father of learning? (laughs) I don't know if he really wants a serious answer or if it was just a funny question, but I love it. Patience. Uh, Any hot takes? JT... Pa- there, oh, there think, we go. JT? Patience. I was going to say I am, but I, that's probably oh, not gosh. the answer he's looking for. <laughs> All right. Best to move on from that quickly. Um, okay. Tabitha says, I've officially listened to every episode of Knowing Faith and even listened a second time, and I'm now curious if you have recommendations for other podcasts. Uh, Tabitha, you must be a glutton for punishment. <laughs> I mean, just golly. Um, no, I mean, that's very kind of you, Tabitha. Um, yeah, recommendations for other podcasts. Obviously, I'm going to talk about our sister shows, Starting Place with Elizabeth Woodson, Family Discipleship Podcast, mm-hmm. Confronting Christianity, and the coming this fall, Tiny Theologians uh, with Amy Gannett and her team over there. So that, I would point you in those directions. If you haven't checked those out, you should, but I'm assuming you know about those. So let me give you a couple other podcasts you could consider. I am a like a stalwart believer in the Renewing Your Mind podcast feed from R.C. Sproul. I think it's really good. I think it's time-tested. You should check it out. It's not new. It's not cutting edge. It's really not fancy. It's lots of clips of Sproul, and you should check it out because they do a good job with it. Um, and then I would say we've recommended in the past 
the Bible Project on script. Uh, we've recommended, what else have we recommended? I mean, we've recommended, oh, those would be some of the other ones that we've said. All of those come with a big asterisk, which is like, do not hold us liable to what may or may not be said on any other podcast feeds that we do not manage. <laughs> so just like, there it is. But I have found all three of those beneficial in the past. Anything else come to mind for you guys? I'm not a huge podcast listener, but I am a huge R.C. Sproul fan. So now I'm thinking I need to check out the one you mentioned. JT? I'll double down on Bible Project. I know that feels like a broken record for us, but like we have so much in common with what they're doing and similar hearts. Mm -hmm. I, I was just flying back from Dallas this past week and some of the other podcasts that I listen to that are more like kind of political or health oriented that maybe we wouldn't recommend here. I was like, oh, okay, I haven't listened to the Bible Project in probably three or four months, maybe six months. And I was like, I'll listen to a few. I listened to like six, I've listened fast. I listened to like six episodes in a matter of two and a half hours and changed my whole perspective on what it means to be anointed. Like I learned so mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. It changed what I preached, uh, how I preached something on Sunday. So, man, I don't think I've ever listened to one of those podcasts and not benefited spiritually, emotionally, intellectually about what the Bible is, who God says he is. That's great. Um, okay. Alexandra says, I am digging into my Bible. That's awesome. Uh, I'm having a hard time knowing when passages should just remain understood in their original context and when we can also see broader application for our lives, especially in the Old Testament. I know that seems simple, but could you run through basic guidelines for that? It especially makes it engaging in community group type settings difficult where so much is application focused. All right, Jen is uh, pursing her lips together because I would imagine she has heard this question many times. So, Jen, I'm reading the Old Testament and it seems weird. And how am I, am I just supposed to let it be weird 4,000 years ago or am I supposed to glean something from it now even though it's weird? That's my version of uh, Alexandra's much better question. Yeah, you're going to need to read the envelope on that book. You're going to need to get a little (laughs) bit of the sense of what the culture was like at the time. You're going to need to get a little bit of a sense of uh, who wrote the book and why. And so basically, if something seems super weird to you, it's because you're missing some critical piece of information. Um, Some of the critical information, though, is just within the book itself. So what you're probably not going to be surprised to hear me head toward is that repetitive reading of these narratives in the Old Testament is really important for us to let the initial oh, what's happening here, dissipate as we become more and more familiar, not with just a particular snapshot story, but with the flow of the whole book that you're in. And um, and so that's, that's just not something that's going to happen immediately. So yeah, there is always application for us. And the way that I try to make this clear for the people who do my studies is before we can ask what it means for me, the individual, and for now, I have to first ask what did it mean for them and for them? So what did it mean to the original audience who heard these stories told? And then what does it mean for us and for always, for the church of all time? It has something that is um, it is bigger than any individual application point. And that, I think, is probably the, the least exercised piece that people have when they think about application. So just that's something you can use with any book of the Bible. But in the Old Testament in particular, we have a responsibility to try as much as possible to get ourselves into the skin of the the original audience and hear it the way that they would have heard it so that when we make application today, it's not wholly disconnected from the way that they would have made application 
then. It doesn't mean that we have um, the exact same application. It should mean that we have an amplified or a more precise understanding maybe than they did. So even with the question about the temptation of Jesus, you know, that's something that that would have hit the original audience a particular way because they knew the Old Testament. And that means that the way that I interpret it for the church is implicated by that. And the way that I interpret it then for myself is implicated by that. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. Austin asks, what is the significance of the transfiguration? I'll occasionally hear it mentioned as a monumental event in Christ's ministry, but I've never heard a great explanation of its significance. Would love any thoughts y'all have. We can round Robin this a little bit here. He needs to go back and listen to that. Yeah, that really good episode we had on it. Yeah, so we did an episode on, I think we were doing glorification, and we had uh, Patrick Schreiner on, and he just has a book coming out, either like it just released or it's about to release, on the transfiguration. And so, Austin, if you missed that, go check that out. If you've listened to it since then, then we'll just kind of double down. For anyone else, go check out that episode uh, on the transfiguration, or on uh, glorification. But I will say a couple of things. One, uh, in the transfiguration moment, we are getting to see at least a kind of a glorious picture of the fulfillment of the offices of prophet and priest. Uh, and I think the glory that's being held in the transformation ties together the kingly office as well. So I do think we're seeing the threefold office of Christ being magnified with those who appear alongside Jesus. So I think that's part of it is the fulfillment of the office and a glorious unveiling of that to the disciples specifically. Um, I think beyond that, we're getting a sense of this is the kind of uh, the glory that is to come. Um, it's it's the glory that's been withheld from view uh, for much of the ministry of Jesus, but it is the glory uh, that is to come and that will be seen in kind of an unveiled way uh, for all of us in the end of all things. And so I think those are a couple of things. It's a foretaste and a fulfillment. It's a foretaste of what's to come in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a fulfillment of what was promised uh, over the whole of the story of redemption. So I, I, when I think about transfiguration, I think it's fulfillment, it's foretaste. I think that's a good structure to have on the transfiguration. Any other thoughts from y'all? Listen to the podcast. My mind was blown during that podcast mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Patrick. I would just, I, I'm not sure I can add much more than that. Yeah. And go read okay. the book. Yeah. Go read the book. Friend of the show. Uh, all right, JT, why are you Baptist? 
it is beneficial for Christian. Is uh, it is beneficial? I feel like this is a question for you. No, it's a question for you. <laughs> it's, be- it's beneficial for Christians to be exposed <laughs> to other traditions that are within the bounds of orthodoxy. Yes, we agree with that. If so, how are you doing that personally and at church? So, JT, why are you Baptist? And if it is beneficial for us to be exposed to other traditions that are within the bounds of orthodoxy, how do we do that practically? As people, we're all Baptists. Spoiler. So. Yeah, that's a great question. I and I think it's important to maybe distinguish being Baptistic and being Baptist, like denominationally, because I was saved in a Baptistic kind of environment. Campus Crusade, a lot of the people that I was kind of around those early years was just kind of big church, free church, evangelicalism, not a whole lot of kind of certainly mainline denominations. There, there wasn't a lot, or maybe kind of more of the traditional PCA Anglican. It was just a kind of a free church market and, and and people that I was exposed to. So that kind of became some of my early influences and who I was reading and who I was spending time with and the sermons that I was hearing, those kinds of things. And then going to Dallas Seminary, I would say Dallas Theological Seminary, so people kind of think of it, I think maybe it's a bit more of a narrow educational experience. Man, that was not my experience at all. It was such a broad kind of big tent evangelical experience where I was sitting next to Baptists, to Methodists, to some Catholics who were who were uh, auditing classes, a ton of Anglicans, a ton of Presbyterians. And so one of the things that would happen in those kinds of classes is the professor couldn't really give a trite or narrow reading of something that denominations would have disagreements over. And I found that to be so helpful. As a matter of fact, a lot of my friends who came into my master's degree with me and kind of coming from Baptistic or broadly evangelical traditions, a lot of them are Anglicans now. Uh, Several of them are Anglican priests, uh, bishops, fathers. So uh, a lot of those guys are just still friends of mine. So I get to spend a lot of time with them, talk to them, text with them, call them. Uh, And that was a really great experience. My doctoral experience was obviously a bit more narrow in terms of being at a, at a, a Baptist school, uh, which I'm thankful for. And ultimately, I'm, I'm a Baptist because I of two, I would say three probably primary kind of theological commitments I have, one of those being believer's baptism, another one of those uh, being the local, like local church autonomy, and then also separation of church and state, uh, which is a kind of a Baptist distinctive that's developed um, in kind of the early American colonies, which I'm thankful for. So those three would be the, the main ones, but I still love to engage with other traditions. I mean, my favorite theologian, as you guys well know, Herman Bovink, second favorite, Augustine, still a big fan of Jonathan Edwards. So I try to read, especially historically, people outside of my tradition. And uh, yeah, I think that's probably it. Yeah. Why are you a Baptist, Capti? Why am I a Baptist? Uh, better the devil you know than the devil you don't, right? Um, uh, no, There's no uh, devils I, in, in in Baptist world. Sure, yeah, I couldn't possibly be caught suggesting something <laughs> as crazy as that. But I will say that, yeah, no, I mean, for the reasons you mentioned, convictionally, I am Baptistic, and the Southern Baptist Convention is the convention, is the denominational home, by and large, for those who have those convictions. It's not that. It's the only one. It's just that they're the largest and the ones that the one that I'm most familiar with and the ones that I think are trying to have the biggest impact on North American missions and international church planning. So those were some of the reasons why I uh, I am a Southern Baptist. Um, I certainly uh, I think for all of us we can say that our biblical convictions run deeper than our denominational convictions, and that's healthy. That's healthy for everyone, regardless of the denomination they're in and whether the cultural winds are with them or against them. Your biblical convictions should run deeper than your denominational convictions. And it, it is the case for all three of us that that is true. So um, John Paul asks, love the podcast and what you guys do. Lately, I've been thinking of how on the cross, 
Jesus took upon himself the full measure of the Father's wrath and how Jesus bore upon himself what was deserving for us. At the same time, he gives us his righteousness and justification, whereas now the Father sees us as holy through Jesus. It's something I would love for you guys to expound upon because it seems too awesome at times that Jesus both took what we deserve and gives us what is needed in order to be saved. Yes, John Paul, it does sound too awesome. Uh, <laughs> it does sound too great. I... I you're not wrong. I don't think, and I and we're and we're not laughing because it's a silly question or observation. It's because you've nailed it. I can't. I'm not going to be able to. None of us are going to be able to expound upon it in a way where it's like, oh yeah, that seems like a fair trade now because it's not fair at all. So it's not an equitable arrangement. It's a gracious gift, and this great exchange, as many have called it between the unrighteousness that we possess by nature and the righteousness that the Son of God possesses by nature and that exchange that happens in the substitutionary atonement of the Son of God on the cross is not equitable. It's gracious. And um, there, it's, it's not a formula that will be balanced. It is imbalanced and will be imbalanced forever because of the preponderant weight of grace that's demonstrated in it. So, yes, I... I I am also astounded by it, and I think that's the right place to be with it. Is to marvel at it. It's to marvel at Good it. Good news is an understatement. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. Uh, Matt asks, uh, should Christians have self confidence? Hmm. What are helpful and unhelpful ways Christians can think about self confidence? Jen, what do you think? Should Christians have self confidence? Yeah, there's such a thing as self confidence and humility. You should have a right estimation of yourself, right? Um, and if you're good at something, you should be acting in accordance with what you're good at. And if you lack self-confidence, it's possible to be good at something and squander it because you don't act on it. And so I think the parable of the talents would be an example mm -hmm. of how we can think about what it means to have self-confidence that is appropriate. Um, just because there is a bad form of self-confidence doesn't mean that there isn't a good That's right. form of it as well. And it is one of our callings as believers to walk in a self-confidence that is grounded in a right understanding of our relationship to God and others. Yep. That's right. Was that a self-confident answer? Did I give a self-confident answer just then? <laughs> yeah, you, you you nailed it. I mean, and I, I really like the question because I do think that yeah, there I is like you. a, you because you can hear it and be like, well, I shouldn't have very much confidence in me because of the impact mm -hmm. of sin. But like for the believer in particular, the impact of sin has been measured. We're not saying it's completely gone. Mm -hmm. So I would say, and maybe I'm wrong on this. I think that I would expect to see a growing sense of self-confidence in the life of the Christian as opposed to the life of the non-Christian because mm -hmm. there's a exceeding or there's an ever-growing sense of the grace of God that undergirds us and the spirit of God mm -hmm. that empowers us that we're being made more and more into the image of Christ. So I, I would hope that a believer 10, 20, 30 years in might experience greater degrees of appropriate self-confidence and lesser degrees of inappropriate self-confidence. Yep. That's I think that would be the goal for all sanctification and all matters of self-understanding. So mm -hmm. those are my thoughts. Timothy, we're going to give this one to JT. 
A while ago, I attempted to write a blog post about why I believe swearing as a Christian isn't wise and can even be sin. As I was researching, I was surprised I didn't find many resources on the topic, almost as if it seemed not as important enough issue by Christians. Ultimately, though, even though I thought it was a pretty simple issue, it was a challenge to find words and nuance necessary in a blog about language. Would you guys be able to articulate reasons why swearing is unwise or sinful? JT, if somebody asks you, is swearing unwise or sinful? I can't find anywhere in the Bible. I tried to tell like, you this several times. <laughs> oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's don't bring, don't bring, don't bring too much friend business into podcast true. business. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 not true, not true. Yeah, I mean, I think I actually think we might even have a little bit of slight disagreements here. I think this is broadly an area of Christian wisdom, and I, I what, the the primary place I would point people to is Jesus is continually talking to his disciples not about external performance, but about internal realities. Like what is going on inside your heart is making its way outside of you. And that's what we should be concerned about. Not so much. Are you measuring up to some kind of external guideline that we have developed that is either sin or not sin? Does that that make sense? And so, so many people are asking the question, is this sinful or is this not sinful? And that's not a bad question to ask. That is a good question to ask. But if that's the only question we're asking, we're not really getting to the issues and the matters of the heart, which I think Jesus is, is, primarily concerned about. And so I'd want to frame the question that way. Like, is it appropriate or could it ever be possible to express yourself in such a way as to cuss or to, to, to use what is has been culturally defined as a as a bad word? You know, I don't know that it's always a terribly sinful thing to do. I mean, I think about Paul using some very choice words for some of his, uh, his theological enemies or those who are distorting the gospel. Certainly we see that in the Old Testament as well, but I do, I would want to highlight specifically that it's, it is probably almost very unwise uh, and not necessary to do. It's usually, I think, a very cheap uh, way to, to uh, um, I think, yeah, I think that's how I describe it. It's a cheap way to express what could be expressed in much deeper, profound ways that need to actually be formed and shaped in our heart and in our minds so that we could do it in, I think, better and in, in more articulate ways. Um, I don't know. Jen, you've written on this. I mean, so you could speak about this, I think, better than I could. So my, let me just go back to my final answer is we need to be concerned about issues of the heart, matters of the heart. What is in our heart is going to make its way out. We should be paying attention to what's making its way out of our of our mouths because it's actually giving us a diagnostic and MRI about what's going on in our heart. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I'm pretty sure that's what I said when I wrote on it. I wrote on it quite a while ago. Um, it was back in the day when there was a very well-known pastor who would sometimes swear from the pulpit. And so the the conversation was sort of stirring around around that. I do think motive is the most important question to ask. Um, and it would be, you'd be hard pressed to find, I think, in my opinion, many cases in which your motive would justify the use of swearing. I'm trying to imagine what those times would be. And again, stubbing your toe. Yeah, stubbing your toe. It's 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 lazy speech, and it generally serves to draw attention to the speaker. And then I would say, in addition to mm. motive, the question would be like, well, how did that? Why do I feel the way that I do about this? Um, you know, Jesus talks about the eye as the lamp of the body, and so I think a good question would be, why does swearing perhaps feel normal to me? versus abnormal? What am I feeding myself that is um, perhaps forming me into a person who who regards swearing one way or another? So I would rather, like JT, rather than tell you what to do or not to do, I would say ask some diagnostic questions about your why. Mm-hmm. Excellent. 
Excellent. Well, you guys asked some great questions. Uh, we want to thank you again for the questions you ask. Thank you for being the best audience in podcasting, truthfully. Um, you guys know where to find us online. I don't need to tell you this. If you're listening to this, uh, and this came out on the Knowing Faith feed, the, our Patreon community got this way earlier. Um, and if you want to find out more about what's going on over there, you can go to trainthechurch.com slash support. We don't talk about it a lot because it's not something that we really want to just talk about a lot, but it really does make a lot of our podcasting possible, particularly as we think about developing new projects like the forthcoming Tiny Theologians podcast, which we're so excited about launching in the fall. If this summer you've already gone through Knowing Faith a couple of times, guess what? You can check out our sister shows. Um, If you have been sleeping on Starting Place with Elizabeth Woodson, don't do that. It is exceptionally good, particularly if you're walking with a newer believer or if you're trying to disciple somebody into the way of Jesus. You should absolutely check it out. You're going to, if you've been waiting, you're going to go listen to it and you're going to be like, wow, I wish I would not have waited this long. It's that good. So go check out our sister show, Starting Place with Elizabeth Woodson, Confronting Christianity, um, Family Discipleship Podcast. Uh, we do have a couple of summer surprise episodes that are dropping over the course of the summer. Um, and so we'll have some interviews out with some of our friends, some of our collaborators, people that are working on various projects. I will tell you now, Patreon community, you will be the first to hear it. I cannot tell you what it is, but something really, really cool, a really big project that JT, Jen, and I are going to be working on something many of you have asked for is coming. We are going to announce it. And when we announce it, you'll be the first people to hear about it. It is a very cool thing. We're really excited about it. And we're really excited about working together on it. So anyways, that's what we have coming on. If you want to come see us in September, October, we'll be at the Gospel Coalition doing a live recording of Knowing Faith. If you're a part of our community on Patreon and uh, or you're just a listener to the show and you show up at TGC, please come find us. Say hello. Um, we'd love to, you know, give you a salute, a nod a handshake, a high five, a fist bump, a side hug. A salute um, feels a little weird. I'll, I'll, okay. You don't I'll want to salute. I'll take all the salutes, honestly, uh, <laughs> okay. as many salutes as I can get. I mean, because a salute means you didn't come in for the hug. You know what I'm saying? And I will take a, a four foot away salute. Kyle wants as many hugs as nope. possible. Nope. I shouldn't even have offered it. Andrea Brad cut all this stuff. We hope, we hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace. Bye.